0: This is Channel 253.
1: In this episode of Crossing Division.
0: Public housing is the, is the piece of the puzzle that we're kind of missing. Mm-hmm. We have it, but we don't have it in sufficient quantity, and we haven't had it.
2: And, and we treat it like it's just for poor people, right? And so right. and there's all sorts of racialized stigma yes. and, and bigoted history behind yes. that. Uh, and it's built poorly. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's, it's built with poor design standards. And I mean, it, the way it was built during the, the so-called great society yeah. was just to warehouse black people, basically.
1: Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com.
0: Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Hey, this time on Crossing Division, have we got an interesting episode for you. We're gonna talk about home buying and we're starting with the premise of an article that was recently in the News Tribune. The article was uh, had this title, Virtually sold out, homes priced under 500,000 in Pierce County, hard to find. And I thought when I read that, really? In Tacoma, you can't find a house for under $500,000? I'm a little dubious. So with me today, we have my favorite co-host, Joe Lopez. You want to say hello? Hello. And we thought, you know what we need? We need to talk to someone who is in real estate and who is kind of a numbers guy. So we have our favorite real estate numbers guy, Anders Ibsen, with us today. Hello. Welcome, Anders. Hey, before we get started, tell me um you're just off of the city council. That's right. As of uh, this January. As of last
2: yeah, last January.
0: And so uh how's life?
2: Life is um I have my Tuesdays back. I, That's I see my nice. I see my wife more. We just rescued a dog from the Humane Society. So yes. life is peachy.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, let's uh, let's open this up. So virtually sold out. Homes under $500,000 in Pierce County are hard to find. And Joe, you actually pointed this out to me in the first place.
3: What did you think of this article when you saw it? Uh, my initial thought was that that can't be true. Right. And that's just from, you know, there are parts of Tacoma you can drive through. And this is not to disparage any of them, but I would find it hard to believe that there are houses going for – five. That the average house in some of these areas would be going for $500,000 Yeah. Or
0: not. I mean, there's places where the houses are just tiny, tiny, tiny houses.
3: Right. And so, you know, they're not going for half a million. And, you know, I, I will say that I'll often talk to people who will say they can't find anything in their price range, and they're typically looking in North, North End, diploma. they're looking in the Wedge, they're looking in the Stadium District, yeah. and yeah, you know – Affordable, that's just not happening in right. any of those areas. Right.
0: And so, just we went driving around this weekend thinking, well, let's look and see. So, we went driving around parts of, uh, including, you know, East side, North Tacoma, we didn't really see anything. East Side, South Tacoma, and we did see some houses for sale, but I'll tell you, we didn't see a whole lot of homes mm-hmm. that had signs up, so that may be part of it too. But Anders, what's your take on this? Nothing's available under 500,000, True or false?
2: Well, Harry Truman once said, "I wish I knew a one-armed economist because they're so fond of saying on one hand on the other <laughs> hand, right So I'm, I'm going to flummox you a little bit today. Okay. but to really oversimplify, if you wanted a, just a, an elevator pitch on this, the homes are there. They just mm-hmm. move insanely quickly, depending on the price range and the neighborhood. Okay. So five hundred thousand is kind of the magic number that article mentioned. It's actually closer to six hundred thousand countywide, and the reason I say that number is magical is because we have what's called a dual market, which means that north of a certain number, it's about six thousand county, six hundred thousand countywide, maybe half a mil Tacoma uh, for our city is um, that's the number at which the market dramatically changes from an insane seller's market, where things are off the market in just a few days, Mm -hmm. um, to a more balanced market where you're not guaranteed to sell your house if you're the seller, and buyers have a little bit more of a say during the transaction. So, uh, for example, I I just pulled these stats this morning because I was curious, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about this today. So, as of now, or at least as of this morning in Tacoma, there are 400 active listings total, right? Now, um, once you're north of half a million dollars, um, you have roughly a 46% chance of selling, which means that of those listings, uh, basically the amount of pendings divided by those uh, a little less than 200 actives uh, means that the ratio of pending listings, listings Mm -hmm. under contract, is roughly 46%. Um, compared to the active, so it's a very mm-hmm. balanced market. Um, north of half a million, buyers are okay, right?
0: Okay, so if you're look- if you have some real money to spend, mm-hmm. and you're looking in the $500,000 plus range, there's some selection, and yeah. you also have some time to look around. You do,
2: right? You have more options. Uh, mm-hmm. Multiple offer situations are less frequent, mm-hmm. so forth. Now, if you're south of half a million. Um, there's still inventory. There's still that half of roughly um, 200-ish listings, at least as of today. Uh, But the amount of pendings is significantly more. um, Almost a three-to-one comparison. So that's 300% versus 46% or so. So it's not like the listings don't exist. They do. Mm -hmm. They just go very quickly. And as a buyer, if you're in that price range, you just have to be very realistic, have a clear sense of what you want, and have a clear strategy.
3: Yeah. Suppose you are somebody, let's say... Our price range is we're under three hundred. We're about two eighty-five. Mm-hmm. They exist, um, but suppose my financing is slow to come. Uh, I'm a VA loan. Okay. Uh, what's my strategy and what's my realistic outlook? Sure.
2: So, any kind of person using a financed offer, your best buddy is what's called the underwriter preapproval, mm-hmm. and I'd say it's all the more. Um, relevant if you have government financing, which has stricter appraisal regulations. So uh, for everyone listening, so if you have a, a regular conventional loan, the appraisal process is basically, is this house worth as much as these people agree to? But anytime you have something like an FHA loan, USDA, if you're out in the, in the Spanaway or you know otherwise rural area, or VA, if you're a veteran, the um, the appraiser by law and by lender regulation has to also look at health and safety factors of the house. Does it have mold? Oh. Does it have chip paint? Um do the gutters have downspouts and, Mm -hmm. you know, splash blocks, just, you know, any old regulatory thing like that. And so um, something that always gives you a huge competitive edge, regardless of what kind of financing you're doing, is submitting your entire loan application to the underwriter before you even have an offer. So usually how it works is in this day and age, you get a letter of pre-approval, which is conditional. It's conditional pre-approval from your lender saying, we've looked at the initial application this person has given us, you know, W-2s, um, pay stubs, car loans, student loans, and so forth. Uh, it hasn't been fully vetted by our underwriting team, but this is the initial process. Um, and, and in usually that 30 days or so when you're under contract, the underwriter goes through everything, uh, puts you through the ringer and then usually you close if you have a good lender and Mm -hmm. and you've been, um, you've given them everything they've asked for. Right now, some people, and this is an increasing amount of buyers who are really savvy. Um, I always try to do this if possible is, um, they, uh, it, it takes a little bit of waiting, but what they do is they send all your loan application files to the lender like, like Usual, but then you wait for the underwriter to completely process everything, and then okay. and then you're given what's called an underwriter pre-approval, meaning that uh, this person is completely cleared to close. We've already put them through the ringer, and all that's required now is just the inspection and the appraisal. And then oh. when you, and so those people can usually close significantly faster. So the average closing, if you're under contract, is about 30 days. If you're financed, if you're underwriter pre-approval uh, under excuse me underwriter pre-approved. You can usually close in as little as 21 days, sometimes okay. more.
0: And so how would you – if you're sort of new to real estate, how would you know to do that? Would, would that be something your real estate agent would help you with?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Just have an agent who's familiar with different financing tools, the different options, and just a good lender too. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And there, okay. there are
2: many I can recommend if anyone's interested.
0: Okay. Uh, well, so talk us through – um. Well, let me tell you this. I went through the um, one of the multiple listing sites just to see, you know, what was mm-hmm. available, and it was interesting. So there were some mobile homes available um, in the sort of eighty thousand dollars range.
2: So, and so to, to be clear, uh, and this is something that's kind of one of my uh, one of my sticking stickler points. Good. Uh, by mobile home, are you meaning homes that are? on wheels in parks, or do you mean the wheels have been removed or they're actually real property on yeah, land? Yeah. So this there's, case, there's a difference.
0: Yeah. In this case, I would say they were they are real homes, manufactured homes right. on a stable base, wheels are off.
2: Wheels are off. Okay. So it's real property. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so a little bit of a, of a little soapbox moment for mm-hmm, me. Please. Uh, Whenever possible, if I ever get the chance, I always advise people don't fall into the trap of mobile home parks. It is the worst of both worlds because you, it's, it's basically living in your car and renting the land underneath your right. car. It is the worst of both worlds. You have a depreciating asset. You don't own anything in, in real terms. You're still subject to a landlord. Um, it's bad news. Don't
3: do it. it well, you know. <laughs> we've gotten involved on behalf of some clients in, in legal scrapes
1: with yeah. yeah, and oh, it's, it's
0: very common for you yeah. know, these these um, mobile homes that are on wheels, even if they're taken off wheels, if you don't own the plot that you're on. You're screwed. You, you really are, because yeah. at the point where um, often the parks will decide, gee, you know what, our property is actually pretty valuable now. We're going mm-hmm. to scrap the park and develop this. Yeah, uh, And you just get given your termination notice that you've got X number of days to move out. And at this point, your mobile home is no longer mobile. And, you know, you can look yeah. into trying to get it moved, but it, it's it just often like, it's like the be. Tiki,
2: except worse. It'd be like <laughs> yeah. if you were a, a renter at the Tiki or the Merkle yeah. or these other yes. affordable housing crises and you owned the, the place that you're renting in, but not the land. It's it's the worst of both yeah. worlds. Now, to the other point, though, if, if you own a manufactured home, but it's actually on land, it's, it's considered real property, mm-hmm. that actually can be not a bad way to enter the marketplace. In fact, believe it or not, even in Pierce County, there are still some, you know, they're just small, double-wide homes. Um, and they're in remote areas like yeah. Long Branch, the Key Peninsula, <laughs> that area. You can still get them for under 200 and they're not in bad shape.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You just I have to agree. drive a lot.
0: Right. Well, and it does allow you to move in and sort of live there, and you might yeah. over time build you know, up some build equity, and,
2: yeah, or mm-hmm. just enjoy
0: the forest. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there there was one house, a very small house, didn't look like it was in very good condition at all. It was on Seventy uh, Second Street mm-hmm. East, and that was selling for a hundred and twenty-five thousand. It's a one bedroom, one bath. So yeah, every now, I mean, you find some, but what was interesting to me was how quickly, you know, very tiny houses. Most of them, you know, some of them actually were not so bad. But you know, you pretty quickly got above two hundred thousand oh, yeah. I mean, dollars, and there's really mm-hmm. not much of anything that looks like it's in decent shape under two hundred. Yeah,
2: because you're competing not just among first-time home buyers, but cash investors, people mm-hmm. from King County who have, frankly, more money to put into these kind of fights than than some Pierce County buyers, and that's mm-hmm. that's where a lot of these multi-offer situations come in, and and that's what drives you up to that three hundred percent chance of selling ratio.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what would you advise someone who's a first-time buyer? Who, who wants to get in, and maybe they don't have a whole lot of money?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first off, know, have a clear idea about what you want in the first place. So a real rookie mistake that some buyers and some agents make is only searching based on your what and not your why. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. So, yeah. so um, it's not uncommon to hear people say, I, w- I want a lot of land. I want a big yeah. lot. So a lot of agents would just hear that and say, okay, great, one acre plus. Um, in the MLS search, and then they look, and those are all the things you look at. And then they wonder, oh, there's no inventory, I can't find anything. Well, how about asking why? How about mm-hmm. asking what the reason is? Do you have animals? Um, do you have a lot of, um, you know, a, like, you know, vehicles or something like that? Mm-hmm. Do you want to shop or you just want privacy or something like that? So, in the instance of um, a client of mine a few months ago who said, you know, I want a big lot, I asked him, okay, cool, why? Uh, and he said, well, we just, we're not antisocial, but, you know, we've, mm. we've, we've rented a lot. and we, we just want some peace and quiet. We don't want to have close proximity to neighbors. We just kind of want to be left alone, you know? And so what do they close on? They closed on a house not with an acre. They closed on a house that had maybe a 16,000-square-foot lot. Okay. But it met, it met their needs, right? And so if, if you do a more nuanced job of anticipating what people's real needs are, the, the real reason behind their search criteria – you open up more options and more inventory becomes available, not because there's more inventory physically,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: you've just expanded what the buyer realizes works for them. And, and mm-hmm. you realize through the searching process that gets refined and people become better authorities on themselves in a way. Right. So that's the first step. The second step is just understanding the programs that are out there. So your standard FHA loan. So for example, there's a very unfortunate misconception that you need a 20% down payment to right. to get in there. That's, that's hogwash. The average Ameri- the American national average for a down payment is about 5%. That's the average that mm-hmm. most buyers put down on a home. If you're an FHA buyer, which means that you can, you can have a credit rating technically below 600. You can be in the high fives and still get pre-approved for, you know, a modest uh, loan amount. And uh, if, if you're just a little bit higher than that, you can get what's called down payment assistance. So your average FHA down payment is only about 3.5% down. And there's a really neat program through our state government and through different cities like Tacoma, Lakewood, Pierce County, that basically gives you the the remainder. So Mm -hmm. let's say you find a really cool house, it's $300,000, your down payment is three and a half percent, maybe you ask the seller to pay your closing costs, and um, that remaining 3.5%, let's say you've only got a few thousand dollars to your name at the moment, um, you can actually take on this down payment assistance loan amount, so it's basically a, a second mortgage basically at a very low interest rate, usually anywhere from zero to 4%, Mm. you don't make payments on that loan until you sell the house. It just sits there? It's just a second lien on your house. And so if and when you sell the house, it becomes due and then you just pay it along with your other mortgage.
3: Out of your proceeds.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just part of the closing proceeds. Mm. Uh, But you're not making debt payments on that second loan. And that can be the difference between getting into that house and you can always refinance later. So you can always let's say you get a raise or you take a second job or just rates go down in general and you're you're in a better spot, you can always refinance your FHA loan or go conventional and then just get rid of that second mortgage as part of the refinancing process. So Mm -hmm. there there are many options if you just get your foot in the door.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's really important um, for people to understand. I think a lot of, um, especially younger buyers, younger than me, are anyway, are thinking I would love to, but I have student loans, right. and I just don't feel I can do that. And and my message out to them would be, you might not be able to, but check it out. Yeah. Because you might – there might be a way. I know I had seen a post on Facebook of another um, realtor friend who said she was renting out an apartment that they that they own. And she said it, any number of the people who came by to rent, she started talking to them about, you know, have you thought about looking into buying? Because the rents now are high enough that mm-hmm. it's almost – if you can afford the rent, you can might be able to afford the mortgage. Oh,
2: well, property managers put you through. It's almost like a buying process. I mm-hmm. mean, it's you know proof of employment, proof of making at least three times the the stated rent, uh, an increasing amount. Require renter's insurance. Um, not to mention the ringer they put you through with background checks and credit checks and all mm-hmm. that. So it's it's almost becoming as rigorous as being a buyer in some ways.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and with the rental costs raising, rising the way they have been in the oh, last yeah. couple of years, you're really at risk mm-hmm. if you're looking to be a renter for three, five, six years. Right. Not to mention, even in, even with our economy in all
2: likelihood heading for a more balanced market, if not a minor recession in the next year and a half or so, Pierce County prices still went up about twelve percent in the past year so the other risk besides making your landlord a little bit richer at your own expense and rent continue to going up uh, to go up along with cost of living mm-hmm. is losing your chance to get your foot in the door because the sales prices keep increasing too
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what if you are a homeowner now but you would really like to upgrade and get something larger maybe your family is growing or sure. you just want to move to a different part of town what Um, What are important things for you to do before you're really ready since you've got to probably sell your house before you can look at buying something else?
2: Well, it's funny you mention that. There are actually different options that only have you move once uh, without the hassle of finding a rental, living with family, making a contingent offer. Those things can all work, and there are actually ways to structure contingent offers to make it a little bit less um, stressful for your clients as well as for the other party. Uh, but my favorite two things for those situations, and it all depends on the amount of equity you have in your home, mm-hmm. is um, either a home equity line of credit or what's called a bridge loan. And um, those are really cool because you're basically using the equity you have in your house as your down payment. Hmm. And uh, this is actually relevant uh, for people, oddly enough, a lot of people in my age group or, mm-hmm. or even you know Gen Xers who just bought it at the right time. Yeah. So for example, I know a lot of people who are in their 30s who just were really lucky and bought in 2010, 2012, 2013, when the market was still pretty weak around here. Mm-hmm. And by basically doing nothing, their value doubled. You know, yeah. If you bought in a hilltop, you bought something under mm-hmm. 200, your home's mid 300s, easy. South Tacoma, same thing. And it, more, more of the appreciation probably happens south of the freeway just because of competition from investors um, mm-hmm. adding to the mix, right? So um, if you're sitting on basically free money, you're sitting on easily $100,000 or more, what you could do is you could either work with your lender and get what's called a a, um, home equity line of credit or even a cash out refinance. And then you basically just have money you can use for a down payment or something that I I like as well is what's called a bridge loan, Mm -hmm. where you work with a lender and the broker you're working with does a comparative market analysis to give an estimate about what your home is worth. And then the lender does some math and figures out based on this, we can give you a loan right now. So it's, even fewer hoops to jump through than the, the HELOC or, or the cash out refi, and there's no appraisal involved either. Um, you basically just have this money available right away, you know, 100, 150, 90,000, whatever, uh, that you can use right away uh, to select your, your new home. And the payment on a bridge loan isn't due until you actually close. So you can have 70, 80, $100,000 or so from your current house. Um, work with your agent to find a new place that you really like and just you know something that makes you happy, that meets your needs for your your life change, whatever that is, whether you're scaling up, scaling down, a, a job change, anything. Um, move into your new house, close, and only then after you close do the payments on the bridge loan start. And then, then you have a, a house that you can sell which is easier to market. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I always advise people whenever possible is uh, for my sellers who are also buyers is if your situation allows for it, the happiest place to be is with a vacant home that you can stage, ideally mm-hmm, stage, mm-hmm. Or, or even minus the staging, just a vacant home because it's far easier to show. Um, and when you're dealing with, you know, a, a society of instant gratification, right, right? Where If it's not this place, then, Oh, what about that place next door? Right. Um, the more eyes you can have in your property, the more you can just Provide that opportunity for people making impulsive knee-jerk decisions to see it. Uh, the better off you're going to be because that's more attention, that's potentially more offers, that's potentially a higher price and better contract terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the fear has been in the past that if I um, if I move into a new place and then it takes me some time to sell my, it won't price. because because and that's of the, the, the The same
2: problem you're identifying, right? Yeah. So that's the case when the problem becomes your saving grace because when yeah. you're a seller in this market. Um, you rule the roost, mm-hmm. and I mean, if you did that kind of program, or let's say you took out a bridge loan and you closed on a really cool new house in, in the neighborhood, and that you wanted the kind of property you wanted, and then you're left with your old house, which is vacant, and mm-hmm. maybe you stage it, or maybe you just really tidy it up and leave it vacant. Um, if you're south of that half million dollar mark in Tacoma. Um, and if you price it correctly and market it correctly and there's no major defects with it, um, you're off the market in less than a week, probably. I mean, I always have my listings go live on Thursdays because they go live on a Friday. We can have a couple of open houses on the weekend. We spam the neighborhood with direct mail. We, Mm -hmm. you know, have all this social media ad buy stuff, um, through there and just kind of cannonball all that marketing in one go. Uh, that, that drives thousands of eyes on that property and that's how you get a multi offer situation. And, and, um. That's what drives the price up, gives you better terms. Sometimes mm-hmm. people waive their inspections. Sometimes people put down extra cash if it appraises low. You get all sorts of cool stuff. Then, if you just market it intelligently with a little bit of foresight.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, tell us a little bit about what what are the real numbers for Tacoma? Sure. So, what what are houses? What is sort of a realistic expectation of what houses are selling for, and what you would what it would take to get into? Um, let's say not nothing fancy, but let's say. I want to buy a um, two- to three-bedroom, two-bath house mm-hmm. somewhere in Tacoma. Happy to be anywhere. outside. will tell you, there, I've, there's a house that is on South Park Avenue right near um, the Fern Hill neighborhood. Right, right now, that's uh, three bedrooms, one bath on a large lot for $280,000 that I think looks like a screaming good deal. Yeah. So any place— But, you know... Sure,
2: just some basic numbers. Yeah, what am I looking at? Okay, sure. So let's start from the top. So the median price for Tacoma, and so this is different from the average. This is the number that's in the middle. Uh, It's roughly, depending on how you calculate it, low threes. So um, some people say it's three forty. My most recent calculation this morning was about 327 to 330 yeah. um thousand and that's so that's the very very middle and that's okay. out of about 4800 sales give or take.
0: If I do you have an estimate of if I'm buying like say a $340,000 house what would my mortgage payments probably be on something like that?
2: Oh, uh, that isn't—that's a lender question, right? Yeah. Um, there are some really cool MLS tools, but um, those are those are very individual questions based okay. on one your credit rating, mm-hmm. um, two the amount you put down, and three the kind of loan product you have. So, oh, yeah, that So, makes if sense. you're FHA, for example, you're getting your foot in the door, but there are some initial charges. There's an initiation fee. Uh, there's PMI, which stands for private mortgage insurance, which mm-hmm. means that. Um, Basically, anytime you put less than 20 percent down, um, the bank considers it slightly higher risk. So they they basically make you pay a premium in in case that you default. Um, Mm -hmm. They get some of their you know, they 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 get their money back, basically, in in the worst possible case, with the exception of VA loans. Uh, VA loans, you don't have to put anything down if you don't want to. Uh, and there's no PMI. So mm-hmm. if you're a veteran, it's a really, really good program. It's it's a phenomenal um, tool with great public policy intentions, and it's, it's a very, very good program. So um, that's the biggest caveat is that it, your monthly payment estimate is something that your realtor can calculate for you.
0: Yeah, but it's going to vary a lot. It it's going to vary it. a lot,
2: right, okay. ba- based on um, information you've provided to your lender. So that's a lender question. Um, but you, you can certainly kind of stab in the dark with some cool uh, MLS tools that realtors okay. have. Um, so that's that's the initial um, answer to your question. So mm-hmm. dif- as for different neighborhoods, uh, that's the thing. It depends on the property type. Um, usually the, the biggest things that determine value, which is distinct from listing price, right? I mean, a seller can list a property for anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the value is what the buyer agrees to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see screaming good deals. Uh, if they're really good properties, if there's no hidden defects, right? Um, It's very common. I mean, I I do this a lot. Very common for listing agents to list under the market value because that's how you get a herd, Oh, yeah, you pull Mm -hmm. in people. Yeah, you you pull in and you get maybe five, ten offers. You drive the price up. And and it's not just the price. It's the terms. because because. it's one thing for people to bid up the price, but if you have people offering cash, for example, then that means, okay, great. I don't have to have an appraisal. That that shaves off another week. That's mm-hmm. that's one fewer thing that can go wrong. Some people might waive their inspection. Great. They're giving up a lot of negotiating power. Um, we're not going to have to give up something for a surprise repair item. Mm-hmm. Uh, one less thing for the appraiser and the lender and the title people to care about. Great. you know. And um, the savviest listing agents, what they do is not only do they Price and market it accordingly to get that heard if, they, if if that's appropriate for the property. But that's often when you find the, the most negotiation on the front end. So, mm-hmm. as a listing agent, for example, what I often do is if we're in those situations and we're in a price range or a property type or a neighborhood that is conducive to that kind of, of spectator sport, you mm-hmm. know, of, uh, of multi offers coming in, um, I often call people and ask people, you know, is that your highest and best? Um, just giving you formal notice there's multi offers. Um, you know, is is there any is there any kind of buyer that uh, is willing to push it up a little bit further? Um, how do people feel if it appraises too low, or are there people who are willing to put down more cash to make sure that it still goes through and you know have a low appraisal situation? Um, you know, who here has a fast inspection timeline, right? Um, I'll never ask people to waive inspections, right? I mean, that's right. that's legally dubious and that's kind of unethical. But yeah. I mean, obviously, if, if people get the idea that hey, this is this home is pre-inspected, we've disclosed everything, uh, who you know. What do you think about that, right? Is that something your buyer is comfortable with? So um, that's that's something a savvy listing agent will do. But that's one thing to keep in mind about the different neighborhoods is that mm-hmm. um, the price is indicative of value, but it's not the value itself. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, the, re- the real quick and dirty numbers I'll just give you averages because okay. everything is very contingent on condition, size, obviously mm-hmm. room count, property type, age, things like that. Um, median North End price, for example, and I, I define the North End as like the Neighborhood Council of the North end, right? So right. the craftsman-type homes, <laughs> Proctor, mm-hmm. uh, Sherman, you know. Mild stomping grounds, you know, mm-hmm. um, low fours to mid fours. So it's, mm-hmm. it was roughly 430 to 440 last I checked for your, your quote unquote typical uh, North End home. Right. West Tacoma, it's, it's a little bit higher because uh, it's slightly more affluent. There are a lot of view properties. There's that one pocket of really modest housing around TCC and yes. uh, the Highlands mm-hmm. area, Highland Hills. But by and large, it's slightly more affluent. Although you, you actually have a surprising amount of 300-ish homes still in West Tacoma around right. Ruston, um Around Westgate, for example, there's, yeah, that's
0: where we are. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah there's there's still a lot, a lot of ways to get your foot in the door. They're, they're just a little bit dated, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of small ramblers. But mm-hmm. you can still live in the West End and pay under four hundred thousand and not have a bad place. You know, it just depends on what you're looking for. Um, South End, if, if you're paying in the mid threes, you're getting a really nice house. If it's yeah. older, it's uh, what I've noticed is that, especially in in the more um, in the homes that are, excuse me, the neighborhoods that. Have a really big contingent of entry-level buyers. Um, So south of Sixth Avenue, south of the freeway, you know, Central Tacoma. um, Less so in Central Tacoma and Hilltop because there's some real gentrification taking on there. But um, mall area certainly, Um, Lincoln, Larchmont, Fernhill. the houses tend to be a little bit smaller because mm-hmm. that's just the vintage they were built mm-hmm. in, um, you know, 1930s, 1940s area for that. Uh, a little bit more recent as you go further south towards the city limits as, you know, you have more of a suburban um, sprawl almost mm-hmm. kind of a of city development style. But the homes that are really small, the under 1,000 square foot type of craftsman, yeah. um, they're almost always flipped and, and remodeled a, a lot of the time because that's mm-hmm. the only way to compete if you're really small in a yeah. lot of cases. Um, but yeah, for, for something that's small, for example, and, you know, high twos that, that can be a good house, uh, with the caveat that older homes always have issues and you should always use a really qualified inspector. Um, median price last I checked for, for example, for East Tacoma was in the low threes, like 320, 330 South Tacoma, a little bit higher Tacoma mall area is the lowest so far. It's I think, um, very low threes to very high twos, depending Mm -hmm. on how you measure it. Um, Northeast Tacoma, has historically had the highest um, assessed and highest um, valued properties because there's a lot of new construction and a lot of view properties. Uh, Northeast Tacoma, Browns Point, incidentally, is very bifurcated mm-hmm. because if you're more inland, then it's, it's more mid-century, you know, <laughs> 1980s, 1970s, Ramblers. And as you get closer to Marine View Drive and closer to this water, it's more modern 1990s to modern McMansions and views and, right. and some limited waterfront as you get closer to Browns Point, Dash Point. But the median price in Northeast Tacoma last to check was about half a million.
0: Wow. So those, those okay. are the
2: highest values by far. So they
0: really probably can't find houses for under 500000 or at least very rarely but in Northeast. You, can't, you can.
2: You're can. you just going to be yeah. further to the east of Marine View mm-hmm. Drive and just have to act quickly.
0: Okay. Well, let me stop you there. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and ask you some more questions.
1: Let's do it. Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by TAPCO, Pierce County's original credit union. You might already know that credit unions are not-for-profit financial cooperatives with a focus on enriching their members instead of big bank shareholders. TAPCO is committed to serving Tacoma and Pierce County, just like Channel 253. That means when you put your money there, you put it back into our community. Think about it. You go to the night market, you go to the grand, and you shop at local stores. So why not keep your money local, too? TAPCO offers the products and services you need—home loans, auto loans, checking and savings, online and mobile banking—all with lower fees and better rates than big banks. Plus, TAPCO donates to local causes and supports our community in other ways, so you can feel good about helping your neighbors. To learn more about our local choice for all of your banking needs, visit tapco.cu.org. My thanks to Tapco for their support of this podcast and Channel 253.
0: Okay, we're back on uh, back on with Anders Ibsen and Joe Lopez talking about housing, housing prices and what you whether it was true that you couldn't find houses under 500,000 and the answer is that is not true, but that it's a difficult market. So Uh, Joe, when we were on break, you had mentioned something about when we bought our house back in 1996.
3: Uh, It was 99, actually. That's right, it was 99. It it was an entirely different world. Um, We paid, we are on the west side of Tacoma, we're near uh, Pearl Street Rite Aid. Uh, The house was very appropriately priced for the market at the time. Uh, the asking price was 169 which was pretty much what houses were going for in the neighborhood. We put in an offer at 165. We settled at $167.5, and that was like January of 1999. That's right. But you didn't have any problem finding anything in those days. I mm-hmm. mean that you know move to Tacoma was not a concept that was right. on everybody's lips at that time. Right. It was a
0: pretty uh, leisurely process,
3: you know. Oh, entirely. Yeah. Uh, you really you didn't worry about we like this house do we have to have jump on it today
0: Mm-mm. yeah it's yeah. different it's tacoma has changed significantly in the last i would say i we've really seen i think in the last 5 years but even over the last 10 years it's a it's a much different real estate market than it used to yeah. be yeah um so anders tell us a little bit about um sort of what you see in the market and if you have any, like, projections of what you think is coming next.
2: Sure. So just in general for Tacoma, the market as a yeah. whole. Okay. So let's start nationally and work our way down. So
0: okay.
2: Nationally, we're um, we're probably due for a market correction maybe in, in the next year to year and a half, give or take. People have been saying that for the past two right. years. right. But, I mean, markets are cyclical, and we always have to plan responsibly for that. It will be nowhere close to 2008, 2009 by all projections – um, simply because, for one, real estate isn't going to cause this recession, right? Unlike the last one, right, where it was real estate and it was the secondary mortgage market and <laughs> credit default swaps and derivatives. Well, I think and, every,
0: and everyone's right. housing uh, values went down. Then I know our house went down. Oh, significantly. Er,
3: significantly. Yeah, and I remember too at that time. If you took a walk around just about any neighborhood, you would find there was a significant inventory of foreclosed, unsold houses that weren't even on the market.
2: And thank God for Um, Mm Dodd-Frank. The new regulation is is still largely intact. Lenders are significantly stricter. You don't get a loan just because you have a pulse anymore. Um, You don't just Mm -hmm. state your income and get it. It's it's very grueling, which on the buy side is very frustrating because a lot of people miss out uh, or at least they're not – immediately getting what they could have done 10 years ago. But, of course, the default rate is much much lower. lower. And the amount of REO properties, Banco properties, is a fraction. It's Mm -hmm. very, very low right now, which which is – generally a good thing from a public policy perspective. Uh, but it's, it's important to note, speaking of recessions and home values, historically, recessions don't drop home values.
0: Oh, really? G- yeah, 2008,
2: well, 2009 was the exception because, again, real estate caused it. Right. But all the other previous recessions, 9-11, stagflation during the 70s, the two Reagan recessions, um, housing values stabilized, and they, mm. they went up just a little bit with inflation, but th- there wasn't a dramatic drop. So that's that has good implications for sellers, right? Mm-hmm. But it also has a lot of implications for that for those buyers who think, oh, I'll just wait for the crash. Yeah, well,
0: it may not happen.
2: Yeah. Well,
3: and, and that's what I was going to ask. Even in a market correction, how much of a correction can there be given the fact that what's largely been driving the the price increases is not likely to change in no, the next few exactly years? Exactly right,
2: right. Demand is, is still very much the case because the demand around here, at least, in, in the South Sound, it's driven by pushing and pulling, right? It's right. driven by the fact that, we have roughly half the market value of of Seattle, right? You know, the, depending on the neighborhood. And Seattle has huge disparities between neighborhoods. I mean, I mean, we we think we have it bad with the hundred hundred fifty thousand dollar difference between North End and South End mm-hmm. or Hilltop. Uh, th- there are hundreds of thousands of differences you know. between um, Laurelhurst and Windermere and you know right. West Seattle versus um, um, Beacon Hill, for example, in, mm-hmm. in South Seattle, right? So just huge disparities between their neighborhoods and lots of inequality. Um, but that affordability is is definitely a market factor, and that's not going to end anytime soon. Um, and then there's the broader aggregate pull of people moving to the Northwest from other parts of the country. So yeah. from, from California, from other parts of the country who work in different fields. Uh, it's not just tech workers, mm-hmm. obviously. I mean, they have an outsized influence because they're affluent in, in a lot of cases, but
3: – They get blamed for everything. Right, though. right,
2: right. And it's – it's I mean, a very small amount of people comparatively mm-hmm. work in Seattle who live in Tacoma, but they, they do have an influence certainly. But – the Northwest is a cool place. I mean, there's a lot of employment opportunities. It's moderate weather, and that's going to become even more apparent as climate change worsens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things to do. I mean, in Tacoma, we just take for granted the fact that the mountain is out, that we say things right. like that. That right. You can drive an hour to a national park. You can drive another hour towards a rainforest. There's mm-hmm. water. There's mountains. There's moderate. desert. There's desert. Yeah, moderate weather. You're mm-hmm. You're in a major metropolitan area without feeling like it necessarily. And there's just kind of something for everyone, right? And that's, that's kind of the, the basis for people's attractions to our area in particular, but the Northwest in general. And it's it's a very recent development comparatively. But um, so, yeah, you're, you're correct. Joe, that isn't going to change. What probably will change if I can look into my crystal ball as best right. as I can, which I, I really can't. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see happening is um, – You'll still have kind of a structural shortage, but maybe a little bit more inventory coming online relative to demand Mm -hmm. Um, and slightly less crazy market reactions. So fewer multi-offer situations, longer days on market, um, less price escalation, less competitiveness. But I still think you'll see some traces of of seller market behavior, but just not as rampant and maybe Mm -hmm. a a slower um, sales ratio, a lessened chance of selling, maybe a, a lower division line between the balanced market and the seller's market. So you'll definitely see changes, but uh, nothing anywhere along the lines of 2008, 2009, um, primarily because the rise in market value is actually sustained by real income. That's the biggest difference is Mm. that um, it was completely unsubstantiated debt um, that was worsened by speculation and just deception from the financial markets. Um, But the gain in sale in sales value is actually driven by real income. It's just real income that's driving out some people from the area yeah. with with displacement and gentrification. So there's yeah. um, there's a significant difference there.
0: So let's uh, let's talk about that. I I um, am always interested in both discussions about gentrification, especially within a, within a city, and then displacement. Is there anything that that we can do that you can think of the, to help sort of moderate that impact of, you know, we have our, it's often sort of the lower income people in your community who are on the edges of being able to not afford their housing. Now, if they're home owners, I think they have some additional protections, but if they're renters, they, they don't have a whole lot.
2: Right. And that's, that's the biggest difference between renting and owning is that mm-hmm. when you own, time is on your side. You get in, in most cases, you have a fixed rate mortgage, Maybe property taxes go up a little bit, but mm-hmm. property tax growth is capped, so it really can't go that much. And if you're really on the fringes, you can get a senior citizen um, discount if, if you're a senior living on a fixed income, for example. Um, and for the most part, your monthly payments tend to stay the same or very similar. Mm-hmm. They, they go up less than inflation. So basically, in real dollars, your payment goes down every year, right, mm-hmm. um, compared to real cost of living. When you rent, it's just the opposite. So if time is your ally when you own, time is your nemesis. Right when you rent, because cost of living will always go up. Um, landlords, especially property managers, will always raise the rent to the largest extent they can capture the greatest profit. It's no sure. different from any other business model. And we've seen 10 plus percent increases on a pretty consistent basis in a lot of neighborhoods. And that's
0: you, that's high,
2: and that you, you can see that you can. You can pet your boots. That's going to continue as a longer-term trend, right? Mm -hmm. And in in some cases, during recessions, rent goes up more because people still have to live somewhere. And if they're not able to buy, they have to rent. So ironically, even in a recession, rental increases can actually go up Mm. just because of the need, the human need. Um, And, I mean, you you can make a deeper, um, more structural argument, which we don't really have the time for today, about Mm -hmm. how um, you're kind of always set up for winner-take-all, you know. Um, winners and losers situations when housing is a commodity, right? Yeah. When my gain, you know, my equity gain, right? My mm-hmm. my um, monetization of the place that I live um, comes at the expense of someone who now can't afford my home, right? Mm-hmm. So good for me, boo for you, right? right. Even even if there's more ownership and, and you know, comparatively more um, ownership opportunities for people, you're still going to run into that. So if we're, you know, king for a day, right, Mm -hmm. queen for a day, Um, waving our magic wands, then I think the real solution is to look at alternative forms of ownership in the housing market. So looking at things more like cooperative housing, community land trusts, uh, public housing too. So Mm -hmm. looking at places like Stockholm, Sweden, um, Singapore, Vienna, Austria, where there's not only a a pretty substantial chunk of public housing, but it's not means tested either. So that Mm. means that people who are mid-level professionals, even theoretically affluent people can rent government housing. And it's, it's not like Cabrini Green. It's not the projects. It, it's nicely built and maintained housing. And actually having more affluent people rent is good for the project because it means that your operating costs are lower and you can, mm-hmm. you can maintain it nicer. And it, it's just good socially to have good integration and uh, no ghettos for the rich as well, right? right? And so why public housing is so good, in my opinion, is just a good policy uh, besides the people that it directly houses. And Gives a place to live is that it has the effect of disciplining the rental market. So a good mm-hmm. a good example locally would be Click. Right when you have yeah. you have this publicly owned utility that literally drives down Comcast prices and drives down CenturyLink prices because you have this public option that people can use um, as as another resort. And so mm-hmm. that that's really I think the solution. Um, rent control can get can get kind of a messy discussion, and, mm-hmm. and it's it's already illegal here, right? right. right. And it, it it's at least for the moment off the table. Um, you can have a sincere argument about the efficacy of price controls one way or another. Uh, but one, one thing I think that's been proven time and time again is that public market competition is very effective mm-hmm. and it, it's very clean. Um, it's, you're, you're basically just having a market entity that's not-for-profit motivated differently. And further, furthermore, the other advantage of public housing is that you're not waiting for market signals to build. Yeah. I mean, what happens when you have Huge gluts of new construction, like you've seen in Portland or Seattle or other cities. For one, it's almost always luxury. Right. So you're not building for the affordable the people who need affordable housing because mm-hmm. there's no profit in building affordable housing. Right. And for two, uh, besides the inventory being wholly inappropriate for the people who have the most need, what happens when they build a glut? They stop building. <laughs> right. Right. So builders will never build a glut uh, build past a certain point in the supply and demand curve because mm-hmm. it's counterintuitive. They can't recoup their cost. Mm-hmm. And so the public sector is motivated differently. You can still build beyond market demand. Right. So for all those reasons, I, I think we really need to take a look as a society, but even locally at that. But that, mm-hmm. that's the king for a day stuff. Yeah. Locally, there's down payment assistance. There's other really cool stuff the city is working on, like inclusion or zoning, transit-oriented development, many other really cool policies too.
0: I think that's that's what I'm hoping to see. And just to, for a clarification for people, uh, what Anders is talking about with regard to rent control, because I see a lot of people saying we really need rent control, we need to rent control. Here's the situation: There's a statute in Washington State that says that, um, basically, it says you know rent control or is removed from local government's powers. If the you know there is the there is no authority to regulate rents in the state of Washington. Now you could change that. You would need to go to the legislature. You would need to make a change. It's just one statute, so it's not hard to amend it. I think if they were to amend it, it would be to allow cities above a certain size to have some rent control powers. But you know, right now that's a barrier. The landlord lobbying groups are very powerful, especially in, in Olympia. And, um, you know, that is just a, an idea that doesn't seem to be getting much traction, even though we talk a lot about, but what about rent control? That's what it would take. Um, but, you know, at the sense,
3: you know, let's be clear, though, without something like rent control, there is very little that municipalities can do.
0: Right.
2: To, Other than to, terms to, of, the, of the – Landlord-tenant agreement. like right. uh, But there's very little that municipalities or, right.
3: can do to check the rental market no, and it's... escalation in prices in the rental market. And that particularly hits Tacoma because we have a large chunk of the single-family housing mm-hmm. stock – is owned and held as rental properties, so those types of renters are really at risk in a market. And that's like half this. our city. We're fifty-one yeah. percent renter. Oh, is that yeah. right? Yes, yeah. for it, for
0: it, homes too.
2: Yeah, just in general, half of our of our population, based on census data, is
0: renters.
3: Renters, yeah. yeah. And so that, that's what that that's where the gentrification problem in a city like Tacoma comes in. Mm-hmm. That rental property, those renters are really at risk right. in a market like this. And those are largely the people who are getting pushed out of the city.
0: Well, and I would say something that you just said is, is very interesting, that is that there are limits on what the city can do. The city can't impose rent control. But right. um, some of the things we're seeing that Tacoma has done, with regard to better notice provisions for tenants. um, There's something that I heard on the news this morning that Seattle is looking at a prohibition saying, you may not evict someone during the winter months. It was uh, November through April sort of timeout, no evictions. Now, people are expected, if they're not being evicted, to still continue paying their rent through that period of time. Um, And there's groups looking at uh, renter's assistance, but no evictions to try to avoid having people become homeless during the coldest months of the year. So mm-hmm. there may be things around the margins that you can do to make it a little bit um, less horrible. But yeah, there's not a whole lot you can do about the the rent increases. Yeah. Um, but I think that, well, I think it's a real challenge. I mean, I agree with you completely that public housing is the, is the piece of the puzzle that we're kind of missing. Mm-hmm. We have it, but we don't have it in sufficient quantity and we haven't had it.
2: And, and we treat it like it's just for poor people, right? And so right. and there's all sorts of racialized stigma yes. and, and bigoted history behind yes. that. Uh, and it's built poorly. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's it's built with poor design standards. And I mean, it, the way it was built during the, the so-called Great Society yeah. was just to warehouse black people, basically. Although I will say,
0: you know, Salishan, if you drive through Salishan, it's very attractive. Right.
2: Yeah. And that's that's public housing done right. And most of that yeah. is actually a mixture. There's, yes, there's, some, a mix. there's some subsidized housing. There's a lot of typical non price restricted market rate housing that mm-hmm. sells in the mid three hundreds. And it's it's very attractive housing actually. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a nice it's, it's a, nice a nice attempt area. to
0: develop a community. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if people feel that they're in a community there, but it, it at least when you're visiting, it's it seems like it has some of the Yeah and there's vegetation,
2: aspects. there there are mm-hmm. services there. There's a bank, there's right. a health center. Health clinic. Mm-hmm. school.
0: cool. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, I like it had that. Had a
2: farmer's market until they closed it. Yeah. They had great voter registration and great voter participation in the last election, actually. Oh, did they? That That's was a very interesting. Very, I heard that from uh, um, one of our former city council members, actually, mm-hmm. Marty Campbell, who mm-hmm. used to be their property manager there right. in yes. his other job. And apparently that was a very concerted effort that members of the Salishan HOA and neighborhood groups did. And, and apparently they, they did something right to get that kind of voter participation.
0: Oh, that's oh, excellent. So, yeah. That's excellent. One other thing I wanted to follow up that you said, Anders, and that's that the benefits of getting into home ownership. And yeah, I, I would agree that this has tended to be something that, you know, uh, sort of a white middle class ideal of moving through life. But you know, if there's a way that you can swing it, if you're if you can swing it with your family, and that and I'm all for if that means you have a house that has grandma, mom, and kids together, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. If you can swing a way to get in there. Um I was at a uh downtown on the go forum last month and that was when we were talking about housing, especially housing problems faced by the our aging population. Right. And just the the, the little one little snippet takeaway was home ownership has the impact of generational change right. on the and finances of the right. And it's people. it's
2: very fitting that you mentioned white middle class because the history of real estate, uh, and I, I, I shouldn't even say history because it's very much a present reality, yeah. is one of racial hierarchy. Yes. So there's a reason why there's 100000 $150,000 difference when you cross Sixth Avenue, for example, right. because for one, HUD, the Housing Urban Development Administration, Ben Carson's little realm, um, they had it as stated policy until the 1970s, Sta- actually formally written government policy. That FHA um, loans would not be insured in any neighborhood that had a certain percentage of black residents um, or or any kind of black borrower whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. So that was until the 1970s, so just a few decades ago, uh, for one. For two, there are all these various private covenants, which um, thankfully did a representative, Christine Kilduff, and our auditor, Julie Anderson, and others. Uh, We were able to allow people to. Even though they're legally non-enforceable, just easier ways to get that ugly language out of their just deeds. To get it out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to move past and just make a statement as as a community. Um, but you can be damn sure that had a huge effect on people's ability to get their foot in the door. And I mean, I, I was I was reading an article by former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, and uh, I didn't know the number was this high, but apparently all the wealth, just the total, you know, GDP, privately owned wealth in our country, about sixty percent of that wealth is inherited. Yeah. So when the government and even non-governmental deed restrictions, covenants, um, just informal wink-wink, redlining type Mm -hmm. of of understandings between real estate professionals, lenders, and just snobby racist communities in general, um, deprive an entire cohort of people, generations of people the ability to even get their foot in the door, you can be damn sure that's going to have generational impacts about people's ability to get that kind of of uh, ability to grow their wealth. It and, does. And I mean, from the, from the onset when the the New Deal started and we, we had HUD start in the 1930s, uh, that was whites only. Mm-hmm. So we've had a literal of decades of deliberate policy to create that racialized system of winners and losers in mm-hmm. our housing market. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so so incumbent on us as, as professionals in this industry. And, and even if you're not a real estate professional, even if you're just a decent human being who has to buy or sell or you just... Have reach like you guys do. Um, just acting with intention. Mm-hmm. Um, that all of us have some kind of responsibility to deconstruct and demolish these these caste systems, these these unearned edifices of privilege. Yeah. Um, and that some of these programs, even though modest, can definitely make an impact. Um, ultimately, we need really deliberate federal and state and regional policy to have purpose uh, behind dismantling yeah. the, the racial inequity. But at least in the meantime, with the own with our own pragmatic steps we can make in our own lives, um, there's still a lot we can do to help. And a lot of these yeah. programs that we've mentioned, a lot of these strategies can still make a difference uh, for people of, of all backgrounds, all races, all neighborhoods.
0: Well, I can remember um, when Victoria um, Wooders was running for mayor, one of the things that she said was, I, I don't remember if she said it at a forum or if we were talking, but she said, you know, when she... I think got her job with uh, the county being a, a assistant to Harold Moss, yeah. she was making a good salary and was thinking, Oh, I can afford a much nicer apartment than I've been living in right and it was people talking to her saying hang on you you should buy something and it had never she say it never had occurred to her that she could buy a house and it was kind of a um you know it opened her eyes of you know, to actually start looking at what would it take to buy something. Right. And I think that's that's the thing that I – the message I would like to share today, if anything else, is um, do some research and take a look. If you've got a decent job, maybe go talk to a real estate agent just to say, I'm I'm not sure I can do it, but I'd like to talk through what it would take because it is the key to – significant generational benefits. If you can get something in there that, it, that you know, increases over time in value that you can borrow against, that you can then later, you know, sell or pass on to your children. It
2: just starts the process.
0: It's it's huge.
2: And what I always tell people is the absolute worst you can hear when you talk to a lender, and, and I, I know it can be scary for a lot of people because um, for whatever reason, we're trained to have this internalized shame with money. Yeah, that's yeah. That's just... Kind of that barbaric kind of capitalistic mentality, but the worst thing that a lender can tell you is a plan, right? right. That's, that's that's what I tell people is at best you're going to have options and you you can buy today if that's what you want to do or later whenever you'd like to. But the worst that you'll you ever hear is, hey, here's a few things that we have mm-hmm. to deal with that may preclude you. Um, here's a plan. You know, maybe you can consolidate some of this debt or mm-hmm. you know deal with you know immediate. Uh, immediate debt, like your credit cards or collections or something, mm-hmm. and then maybe down the road, we can consolidate student loans or auto loans, right. medical debt, whatever, uh, but at least they'll come up with a plan, right, or at least some greater knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of lenders who can do that with what are called soft pulls. So instead of pulling your credit um, in a serious manner, right, which sometimes has some impact on your credit rating, you, right. albeit minor, Uh, There are a lot of lenders that increasingly do soft polls, where they kind of get a general idea about what the ballpark range is, but Ah. without actually pinging the the big three uh, rating agencies. you, You can get a good idea and kind of do your homework in advance of yeah. making any loan application if you want to do that
0: good well and that's why i really wanted to talk about this article because i think headlines like this virtually they, sold they out, really don't help they don't help they make it sound like it's not for me and right. i think that's the wrong message for us to send
2: well the good news is who's actually reading that article right It's the news right. Tribune. <laughs> <laughs> sorry shots fired <laughs> well, right.
3: yeah. well one one question we, we talk about first-time buyers we talk about that who are our first-time buyers In a very general sense, what's the average age of a first-time buyer in today's market?
2: Sure. All shapes and sizes. I've worked with people who are buying for the first time after um, being established in their careers, after having Mm -hmm. families. I'm having people my age. I'm having people younger. Um, it It really just depends on people's life circumstances. And as an agent, I always tell people, don't, base your decision whether to buy or sell or just get more informed on abstract economics or what's going to happen. The time to buy or sell is when you feel ready, when Mm -hmm. you're comfortable uh, based on your life change that's prompting you to think of this. So in that same vein, people have life changes that uh, that compel them to move or to acquire another property or get rid of a property all the time in a, a myriad of different
3: circumstances. It just depends. All
0: right. Well, any final thoughts, Joe?
3: Um, my final thought is that I'm glad I'm not in the market to buy a house today.
0: Yeah. You know, I just sort of look back and think, well, that was a wise decision at the time we made it. Yeah. yeah. Final thoughts, Anders?
2: Well, here's the thing. Homeownership isn't for everyone, too. I mean, I hope we have this conversation and mm-hmm. people listening don't get the idea that somehow you're a failure just because you don't own something, right? right? I mean, that's right. – if you want to talk about internalized capitalistic barbarity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um just because you don't own something doesn't mean you're less of a person, right? Owner, ownership is just stuff. It's not you, right? That's uh, true. That, that being said, while we still have to deal with a, with a system that can be predatory and, and winner take all, winners versus, versus losers, the very least you can do is arm yourself with information so you can make an informed decision, whatever that is. And that's that should be the job of a, any kind of real estate professional is just giving you the tools to choose what you feel is in your best interest and what you're most comfortable with. Um, that being said... Um, if you do have the means, um, in most cases on average, uh, you tend to be better off if you do have the means to own uh, because time then becomes your ally. Uh, yeah. You're no longer fighting against cost of living increases. Um, you're starting to build your own wealth and att- obtain some kind of options. And surprise, you'd be surprised what you can qualify for. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll end you with a, a little bit of a positive note. Okay. I was uh, working with some people who were first time buyers um, earlier last year. And it was the first time they ever bought. They moved up from California for work. And uh, I mean, these, these were people who were, I think, kind of middle of the road income wise, but they, they just had, it had never occurred to them that they could qualify for this. And they worked with a great lender. Um, they got pre approved. And long story short, after some tussles and negotiation and typical real estate stuff, they closed on a really nice Buckley $400,000 home, um, first time buyers with you know credit in the, you know, maybe medium range or so. And um, they closed in this house, got a fair amount of repairs, is in pretty good shape. Their total out-of-pocket costs were about $600. And that was their inspection.
0: Really? Yeah. Uh
2: They they had their earnest money refunded. Um, it, It was all just beautifully structured. And there was a fair amount of negotiation. It was certainly a good deal. But... There are still good situations like that, even in this market, even in Pierce mm. County. Uh, it just depends on your overarching goals, the strategy for getting there, and just being informed and making appropriate decisions.
0: All right. Anders, if someone wanted to contact you, how would they reach you?
2: Um, you can call or text me anytime. My cell phone is 253-370-0201, or you can just find me online. My website is andersibsonhomes.com.
0: Great. All right. And Joe, if someone wanted to send you a comment, uh, how would they do that? Uh,
3: Twitter handle is at Joe Lopez Tacoma. Email address is J-O-L-O-P-E-Z 98406 at either yahoo.com or gmail.com since I have the same username on both.
0: Very good. Very good. All right. And uh, before I close out, let me give you one little pitch. We have another Downtown on the Go on February 21st looking at transportation issues Mm. and uh, how our aging population accesses services and transportation. It should be a really good forum. And we will do a crossing division immediately after that where we talk about some aspects of aging and transportation. So I... Come down for the forum if you get a chance and, and listen to us on channel 253.
2: And I always really appreciate the conversations that both of you drive here. It's it's so appreciated and it enlivens our uh, our uh, civic dialogue here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, if you have feedback uh, for Crossing Division, feel free to contact me on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma. Uh, or you can email me uh, truetacoma at gmail.com. And I think that's it for this episode. Thanks. <laughs>
1: Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. The Crossing Division podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Citizen Tacoma, Founders B Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.